and it's Revelation chapter 18, and it's on verse, uh, sorry, page 876. And I'm reading the whole of the chapter. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendour have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. 
no workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Amen. Why don't we just pray? Father, we thank you for your word and uh, we do uh, pray for ourselves now and for the children next door that uh, as uh, we look at your word that you would inform us and that you would transform us, that uh, we would understand your will for this world and your will for us more clearly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't like investing in things that don't last for very long, do you? Of course not. I remember when Cassie, before Cassie and I were married, we had to go to the Department of Immigration and be interviewed in order for Cassie to be granted a permanent resident visa uh, to live in Australia uh, on the basis of our marriage. And uh, it was a big office block in the city and they put us into a cubicle and there was a desk with an immigration officer on the other side of the desk and we had to answer questions. You know, uh, those cubicles, the, the walls are pretty thin and we could actually hear everything that was going on in the cubicle next to us. And there was another couple that were doing the same thing, uh, an Aussie guy and a European girl and I couldn't help but to overhear the questions and the answers. The immigration officer said to the girl, um, she said, um, so this, this relationship, um, it's permanent, is it? And the girl said, oh yeah, of course, it's permanent, for the time being, anyway. Um, and I thought to myself, I, I, well, I hope Cassie doesn't answer like that, <laughs> because... <laughs> And, and, and that guy, I wonder if he, how he's feeling about investing his life into a relationship that's as insecure as that. Um, we like to invest in things that are secure, don't we? It's the same when you're buying a house. You don't just go out and buy any old house. You get an inspection done, don't you? You get a report to make sure that the house is structurally sound, that it's not going to fall down, it's not half-eaten by termites... Uh, that's a wise thing to do because we don't like investing in things which don't last. Yet it's interesting, isn't it, because when it comes to the most important thing, and that is our eternal life, uh, there's a whole lot of people who uh, go and invest their very selves, their very being, into something which is only very temporary, uh, into this world and the things of this world. And that's what our passage today is actually about. Uh, this morning, uh, we're really working through chapters uh, 17 and 18 and a bit of chapter 19 as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Um, and, and it's a passage which helps us to see just a little more clearly uh, what it is that we ought to be investing our lives in. Can I get you to open up your Bibles at Revelation chapter 17 on page 
875. And what we're going to find is that like much of Revelation, today's passage ain't easy to understand. Uh, It's a complicated passage. And some people come up with some rather intriguing and colourful interpretations of it. But when we consider the symbolic way in which Revelation is written and its historical context, then I think things do become much clearer for us. So let's uh, dive into the passage. Uh, In chapter 17, we've we've only read chapter 18. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read sections of chapter 17 throughout the talk. And we'll start with verses 1 through to 6 because here John tells us Uh, of a vision that he had of a woman. So let me read that for you. He says in verse 1, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. You can see why people come up with some interesting interpretations of this. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Well, uh, that's one mysterious woman, uh, isn't it? There she is, she's all uh, dolled up. She's actually dressed like a queen and she's seated on this beast who had seven heads and ten horns. That's one scary beast. Um, And the title on her head says it all. Uh, She symbolised the city of Babylon. Now, Uh, These days, there isn't much left of the city of Babylon. Uh, It's in Iraq. It's just a tract of of land in Iraq, about 80 kilometres south of Baghdad. But Babylon features big time in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Particularly because of one key event, and that was in 597 BC, when the Babylonian army uh, broke broke through the walls of Jerusalem... (laughs) Uh, invaded Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and captured God's people Israel, or the Jews, and marched them uh, across the desert uh, to Babylon. Someone told me after the nine o'clock service, they reckon that's about the same distance between here and Alice Springs. I'll need to check that, but uh, uh, they, they marched them to Babylon where they lived as exiles and resettled there. Now, the the Babylonian army was an army that was greatly feared. They were very evil uh, people. Um, 
I mean, there's one, one story, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 7, uh, when they captured the Jewish king Zedekiah, uh, what they did was they brought his two sons uh, before him and they, uh, they butchered his two sons to death. They slaughtered them uh, in front of his very eyes and then the next thing they did was they plucked out his eyes and they let him live to a ripe old age so that the very last thing he ever saw, the thing which was seared into his memory, was the slaughter of his own sons. It's a nice touch, isn't it, don't you think? It's a, you can see why they were greatly feared. But the, the reason that the Babylonian exile is so significant is this. It meant that God's people were no longer living in God's land under God's rule. Uh, the land that God had promised. They were not worshipping God in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was now in ruins and now they were living as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a persecuted minority amongst the pagans. Uh, it was as if God's promises to Abraham uh, suddenly were no more. And so that's the kind of background history to this. And the question, therefore, is why then is Revelation chapter 17 and 18 all about Babylon? Uh, I mean, you know, when um, uh, Fiona read chapter 18 of Revelation for us a few moments ago, I wonder if you sat there thinking to yourself, this sounds like it's just Old Testament stuff. Anyone think that? Uh, have a look at it again when you go home. Uh, you, you could easily read that and think, well, this, this is like a chapter lifted out of one of those prophets before and during the Babylonian exile. It could have been from Ezekiel or from Jeremiah or from, or from Isaiah um, because it's a prophecy about the fall of Babylon. And it says that Babylon will be punished by God. And all of that stuff about the merchants not trading anymore and the ships not sailing, that's all uh, images of judgment on Babylon. But in the first century, Babylon was code for another city, and that was the city of Rome. Um, we see other examples of that in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter, talking to the Christians who are uh, dispersed around the Roman Empire, uh, says this to them. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings. Now, he's not talking about some Christian woman who's living in the city, of, in the ruins of Babylon. No, he's talking about the church, God's church, in the city of Rome. And much of Revelation is written in code. Uh, just like this beast, which the, uh, the woman rides, the beast that's got the seven heads and the ten horns. And when you read that, you think, well, what on earth is that all about? And John thought the same thing, actually. Uh, if you have a look at uh, chapter uh, 17, verse, I'll read from verse 6 to verse 11. He says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you so astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw uh, once was, now is not, 
and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to the destruction. Well, it's just as well the angel said, don't worry, I'll explain it all to you. It's pretty clear now, don't you think? The mystery has just become more mysterious. But you see, the Christians to whom John wrote this, they would have understood. Um, the beast is the emperor of Rome. And in, in verses 9 through to 11, the seven heads represent the seven hills on which Rome is, is uh, located. They also represent seven kings. Now, mostly these are the emperors who have ruled the empire since the time of Jesus until the time that uh, Revelation has written, uh, with the exception of two who only got to rule for a, a couple of months each. But in verse 11, there is another king. There is an eighth king. How is he described? Well, he is the beast himself, a king who once was and now is not. Um, in verse 7, John describes the beast as being one who once was, now is not, and yet will come. Sounds a bit like God, doesn't it? I mean, in uh, chapter 1, verse um, 8, and there's another verse in chapter 4 where God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the one who is and who was and who is to come. It's the same kind of language, but unlike God, this one will go to his destruction. Um, John's readers would have known who that one was. Uh, you see, the, the worst persecutor of Christians so far in their history had been Emperor Nero, but he was already dead by the time Revelation was written. But there had been this sort of myth amongst the pagans that uh, Nero was going to somehow come back to life. He was going to be reincarnated into another emperor or something rather like that. But the current emperor was a man by the name of Domitian and he was just as bad. So what John is saying here, or what the angel is saying to John, is, is it's, it's just as if Nero had come back again in this present uh, emperor, Emperor Domitian. He's an eighth emperor, but he's one of the seven. That's the seven heads on the beast. What about the ten horns? Well, verses 12 through to 14, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Now, most likely these ten kings were the ten uh, governors of what they called the, um, uh, the, the senatorial provinces of Rome. There was, uh, the Roman Empire was broken up into these ten provinces, and the governors had one-year terms. And their main purpose was to give uh, all uh, authority and power to the emperor in Rome 
And that meant that they persecuted Christians. So they made war against Jesus and against his followers, as we see here. They served the emperor by going after Christians. And if the Christians refused to worship the emperor as God and refused to deny Jesus, uh, then they would suffer the punishment of death. Uh, A few weeks ago uh, in the talk I, I read to you, uh, one of the letters from a governor who uh, lived after this period, but they, that was uh, uh, Governor Pliny, and uh, he had written to the emperor at the time and he had told him how he went after the Christians and those who uh, did not deny Christ, he thought they deserved death in any case for being so obstinate, such obstinate people. So this is what happened in history. Now, why would they do all of this? Well, the, the thing is that if you, want to con- if you want someone to conform to your ways, there's two ways you can do that. One's called the carrot, the other's called the, the stick. And the great challenge which the uh, Roman rulers had was to bring all of these peoples of different races and different backgrounds, to bring them all under one head. Uh, to unite them with Rome. And uh, the way that they did that was twofold. First of all, they held out the carrot. Uh, And what was the carrot? Well, if you have a look at verse 2, in verse 2 it uh, talks about the kings of the earth committing adultery and the inhabitants of the earth being intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Uh, If you go over to chapter 18, verse 9, it uh, talks about the... um, Uh, In chapter 18, verse 9, uh, it it talks about uh, indulging with her uh, in her luxuries. And that was what happened. The Romans seduced the rulers of the other nations by inviting them to join in with her and to share the benefits of the Roman Empire, to share in her wealth and in her power, irrespective of whether or not that was good for their people. That's the carrot. Join with Rome and get drunk on the wine of her adulteries. What about the stick? Well, chapter 17, verse 6, the woman there, uh, John says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And so if you didn't join in with Rome and if you didn't conform then you would suffer. And the Christians suffered terribly. Uh, John wrote this letter to seven churches. Three of those churches were currently undergoing persecution because they refused to worship the emperor as God, uh, which the Romans insisted on in order to unify people under one religion. The carrot was materialism. The stick was persecution. We live in a different world, don't we? Um, Particularly when you think about the stick of persecution, uh, you know, if you think about the world today, that might be like living as a Christian in in an Islamic society. Uh, It might be like living as a Christian in a hardline communist society like North Korea. Um, It might be like living as a Christian 
in the 1930s in Germany where the, the government said that uh, the churches were to acknowledge uh, the party, uh, the Nazi party and the Führer as being the supreme ruler, the supreme leader. Uh, they also said that uh, to the Christians that they were to expel anyone from their congregation who had Jewish blood in them. Imagine that. Um, Peter Charles has got Jewish blood. Did you know that? Imagine if the government said to us, well, you can continue to meet, but you've got to tell Peter and his children that they're no longer welcome in your church. What would you do? Would you say, all right, well, we better just go along with that. Peter, we love you, but sorry, mate, uh, you can't come to church with us anymore because you're Jewish. Or would you say, actually, no, uh, I put God first, I put my brothers and sisters in Christ first, and we will not obey the government, and if that means that I get dealt with by the Gestapo and get sent to a concentration camp, then so be it. Can you picture that situation? Not such a long time ago uh, for people, even some people who we might, might know. And it's, you know, for us, therefore, it's like thinking that we're in that kind of situation. For the Jews in the first, for the Christians, though, in the first century in Rome, they might be thinking, well, hey, this is a bit like living as a Jew in Babylon, in exile. And you see, the Babylonians, they used the carrot and the stick as well. Uh, some of the Jews had settled quite nicely in Babylon. They'd uh, set up businesses, they'd made money, they were doing quite well. And when at time, the time came under King Cyrus, the Persian, to let them go, they said, well, no thanks, we're pretty happy where we are, we're happy and comfortable and we don't really want to go back to Jerusalem, we don't want to be worshipping God in his temple. The carrot is very effective. The stick is very effective as well. For many of the Jews, their great desire in Babylon was to go back to Jerusalem, to be worshipping God there. Men like Daniel, who in his time, the law was established that it was now illegal to pray to God. You could pray, but you could only pray to the king, to the Babylonian king. Now, what was Daniel going to do? Uh, did he acquiesce to that? No. Daniel went up to his room. He opened up the window wide so he could be seen. He faced towards Jerusalem and he prayed. He knew that he could go to jail. He knew that he could be, uh, lose his life for doing that. But he put it God first. He feared God rather than fearing man. And for his troubles, they did arrest him and tried to kill him. Now, Friends, which is the greater challenge for us as Australian Christians? Do you think the greater challenge for us is the carrot or is it the stick? Uh, we can suffer from the stick from time to time, can't we? Uh, not because of government persecution, but uh, rather when it comes to 
um, speaking to people about Jesus or standing up for uh, godly values uh, in the workplace uh, or at school uh, or amongst family and so on. And we find ourselves being ridiculed and mocked for that. How could you believe in those things? Um, you're, that's so 20th century, not 21st century. But the, um, Satan has found the carrot to be a very effective tool in Australia. A friend of mine was visiting South Africa and he was visiting a Christian friend uh, who lived in Johannesburg and he went to the guy's house and the man's house, around the house he had a, a tall um, brick or concrete wall surrounding the entire building and above the wall he had barbed wire and he also had electrified wire around his house. Now he was not a rich man, he was an ordinary man and that's normal. Uh, it shows you just how vulnerable ordinary people uh, living in Johannesburg are. This South African man had spent a couple of months in Australia and to the astonishment of my friend, he said to him that there would be no way that he would want to live in Australia. No way. And my, my friend was stunned. You know, he said, I'm looking at your fence here. Uh, a friend said to him, well, because it would be so hard for my children living in Australia uh, so hard for them to, to grow up trusting God and living for him and putting him first when they're surrounded by so much wealth and comfort and security that you guys have. That's a stark... I, I don't usually think of life in Australia that way, do you? As being a place you wouldn't want your kids to grow up in. But you know what? Maybe that's because I just don't see the danger sufficiently. Maybe it's because we don't see the challenge of that. And maybe that's because the carrot is already having its effect on us. John's message in Revelation chapters 18 and 19 is this. Do not fear the powers of this world and do not invest your life in this world because it is only temporary. Now they call Rome the eternal city. And I'm sure that it's a nice place to visit. Some of you have probably been to Rome. And if you like looking at crumbling uh, ruins and marble statues and getting caught in traffic jams and going round round circles in those little scooters and if you like enjoying a good coffee, a great place to go to. But it's not eternal, is it? It's not eternal. Neither was Babylon. Uh, Babylon was punished when the Persians invaded and God's people were allowed to go home to God's city, to Jerusalem, and to enjoy him there. And when we get to chapter 21 in a couple of weeks' time, we will be introduced to a new city, the new Jerusalem, and that's heaven. That's our home. Friends, if we are people who trust in Jesus... If we are people who trust in the Lamb who was slain for us, 
then that means that we are God's people living in Babylon. Babylon is this world, this world which is ruled by that deceiver, that ancient serpent, Satan, and we're just strangers here. In 1 Peter 2, we don't belong here. We're just passing through. It's temporary. And one day, uh, this world as we know it will come to an end when Christ returns in judgment. Revelation chapter 18 spells that out. And it tells us also that there is therefore a better investment. There is a better way that we can be investing our lives and our very self. And I'll just read to you from chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, and we'll finish off. In chapter 19, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now it tells us, friends, that each one of us needs to make a choice. It's a choice about our hearts, a choice about our souls. It's a choice about whether we invest our heart and our soul and everything that we've got into something which is actually temporary, that comes and goes, that will pass, and that is under the judgment of God. Or will we invest our heart and soul, everything that we are, everything that we have, into trusting in that Lion of Judah, that Lamb that was slain, the one who is victorious over that ancient serpent, Will we invest our heart and soul in that which is eternal? Which one will it be for you? Each one of us must make the choice. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you that your word speaks with clarity, uh, not only to the lives of the persecuted Christians in the first century, but to uh, us today. Father, we are conscious of the uh, deceit of the evil one who wants us to believe that uh, this world is all that there is and uh, that uh, we ought to uh, compromise our trust in you for the sake of this world. Father, we pray that you would give us the insight, the wisdom and the godliness and uh, the, uh, uh, the power that comes by your spirit to resist uh, the uh, allurement of the evil one. 
Father, we pray that we would be people who put our hearts and minds and souls into investing into your kingdom because of the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf and his resurrection. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.